This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this Latin American edition of the program, Chile shifts to the left and Honduras swears in its first female president. Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, who President Biden has tasked with addressing the root causes of migration from the so-called Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, attended Xiomara Castro's inauguration in Tegucigalpa in late January. Poverty, crime, and corruption have prompted thousands from the region, including Venezuela, to make the dangerous trip north despite the physical and legal risks. And in December, Chileans elected a congressman and former protest leader to run the country. At 35, President-elect Gabriel Boric is the youngest and most feminist leader to take the reins in Chile, a country which has been dominated by centrist rule over the past several decades. However, the Wall Street Journal reports that, quote, Mr. Boric represents what analysts say is a new generation of leftists in Latin America. In addition to promising a greater welfare state, politicians such as Mr. Boric pledged to fight climate change while expanding rights to Native peoples and gay and transgender people, unquote. Boric, who takes office in March, recently unveiled his cabinet, which is dominated by females, 14 out of 24 ministers. The youthful center-left coalition faces numerous challenges, including overseeing a referendum on a new constitution, pension, education, and health reform, as well as environmental protection. And the country is still divided. Boric will also have to contend with a split in Congress, where conservatives remain strong, according to Reuters. We will examine these and other developments with our two distinguished regional analysts. Eric Farnsworth is vice president of the Council of the Americas and the Americas Society, based here in Washington, and Benjamin Gadan. He's deputy director of the Woodrow Wilson Center's Latin American program, also based in Washington. And both gentlemen join me by a Microsoft Teams. Welcome back to the program. Hi, Carol. Hey, Carol, how are you? Very good, gentlemen. So good to have you. Let's begin with Eric Farnsworth. Eric, let's start with the election, the inauguration, rather, in Honduras, inaugurating its first female president. Talk about the significance of that and her background. Well, I think it's a positive development in Honduras. It's a real chance for a fresh start. First thing we should note is the elections were free and fair. The losing candidate conceded and Xiomara Castro was elected, as you mentioned, the first female president in Honduran history. But even more importantly, if I can say, somebody who at least uh, initially seems to be committed to the fight against corruption and the fight against illegal narcotics. And this is really an important point because Honduras, as we know from having talked about it previously on your program, is a country where both of those issues have loomed very, very large, certainly in the last presidency of Honduras, but also previous to that. And I think it's an acknowledgement of the opportunity for a fresh start that the U.S. Vice President did lead the inauguration there. That's a very important signal because U.S. Vice Presidents tend not to go to the inaugurations of Latin American or Caribbean leaders. So that's an important signal, and I think it offers a real opportunity. There are some risks. There's a long way to go. Her own background uh, has some questionable issues in it, uh, according to some analysts. But at least as of now, there are some promising signs. Ben Gidan, promising signs with Xiomara Castro at the helm and the significance of a U.S. vice president attending this inauguration where 
she, that is Kamala Harris, is supposed to be leading these efforts to help countries like Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala fight corruption and prevent people from migrating north. Absolutely. I think the vice president's participation in the swearing in at Tegucigalpa, Honduras, represented two things. One, Eric is absolutely right. There's a lot of enthusiasm and initial optimism about Xiomara Castro and, and her agenda. It also represents, you know, a desperation for partners in this part of the world. In northern Central America, you know, the White House has been casting about trying to find leaders who are willing to address corruption, narcotics trafficking, violence, the need for greater resilience, facing climate change impacts and hunger, the pandemic. And we just simply haven't found partners in the region. The governments in Guatemala and El Salvador have been deeply problematic and in fact spend more time chasing away crime fighters and those who would dare attack corruption, both judges and prosecutors, than actually fighting corruption itself. And so what I think you see is just an overjoyed White House that finally hopes it has a partner in the region. Back to you, Eric Farnsworth. Another quick follow-up on Honduras. What's interesting, too, is that Xiomara Castro won on her third try. This was her third try for the presidency, and she was previously first lady during the presidency of her husband, Manuel Zelaya, who was deposed in a military coup in 2009. So no question about it, the fight against official corruption will be front and center on her agenda. But with regard to migration, we just heard Ben Gadan talk about having a real partner in the region to help fight corruption, crime, drug trafficking and economic conditions that are leading so many people to migrate to the United States, which is causing certainly a very big both political and other types of problems here in this country. Are you relatively optimistic with respect to Kamala Harris's task and the ability of the United States to address the so-called root causes in the region because time is of the essence and elections here. And certainly we have lawmakers, particularly in the Republican Party, who are constantly talking about this issue as a black stain, you know, somehow on the Biden administration, even though it bedeviled the Trump administration and many administrations before that. Well, there's no question. These are very complicated issues. They are longstanding. They won't be resolved over night. And it's what I was alluding to in my initial comments. Xiomara Castro has a very strong tailwind behind her. She has a lot of support and the symbolism is important, but she has a very long road ahead. You've mentioned some of the challenges and she is also colored by her association with former President Mel Zelaya, which you also mentioned. And that is deeply problematic in some quarters in Honduras. And so automatically there are some folks who may not be inclined to work with her in the way that it's really going to require a national effort in Honduras to recalibrate and relaunch the country. And the problem with that is that when it comes to migration, many people coming out of Honduras or anywhere for that matter, you know, they're not leaving Honduras because they don't want to live in Honduras. Their families are there, their religious affiliations are there, their culture is there, but they're leaving because in many ways they feel they have no choice or they're looking for better opportunity, whether it's security related, they can't guarantee that their kids, you know, will not not be press ganged into gangs or worse. There may be no jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So the point is, in order to begin to change that dynamic, you really have to begin to create opportunity in the country itself. And that means jobs, good jobs in the formal economy. And that requires international investment. So, you know, it's a longer term path, but international investors are pretty pragmatic. You know, and the question is, what will attract them to go to Honduras to invest 
literally millions of dollars to create jobs for Hondurans. And that's the question, and that's the challenge, not just for Xiomara Castro now, but for the U.S. as well and the U.S. Vice President. And the thing that the White House and the administration's strategy in terms of root causes has sought to identify a lot of the issues, but the one thing that they have not been willing to discuss is a trade agenda or a meaningful economic agenda for development in the region that would draw the investment, that would create the jobs in the formal economy, that would create incentives for people to remain home. And that's the missing link. And it's something that we really have to do a better job collectively, not just discussing, but really finding solutions for. Ben Gadan, how do you see that with regard to the U.S. strategy to address the root causes? Just as Eric said, it's important, and I believe the administration is interested in creating jobs, keeping people in, let's say, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. But the challenges remain. Do you think that the United States is not necessarily doing enough in terms of a trade agenda or attacking or addressing these root causes. I had thought that Kamala Harris was already, you know, raising money, getting investors interested, but how do you see it? Yeah, I think there's sometimes a sequencing challenge when it comes to drawing investment to such a problematic investment climate as you find in Honduras, just extraordinary levels of violence, the absence of the rule of law, these extra expenses that you have when you need to provide security for your executives, the extortion that you often suffer from criminal gangs and organized crime, and the risk that you could be ensnared in some kind of corruption scandal um, because corruption is so pervasive. Now, can you tackle first all of these giant governance issues before you start bringing in investment? No, I think Eric's absolutely right. If you really want to put a lid on migration, you need to provide decent livelihoods to Hondurans. And so I think there is an urgency, and the vice president recognizes that, to start bringing in foreign capital, ideally foreign best practices higher standards when it comes to transparency in the private sector and to start providing opportunities for young and old Hondurans while you address some of these bigger investment climate challenges. Now, when it comes to a trade agenda, we have a free trade agreement with Central America and the Dominican Republic that the region takes very little advantage of. So I certainly think when it comes to trade, you know, we've opened our market tariff-free to goods and services from that part of the world. What we could do is help bring in more investment by addressing some of the hurdles right now that are inhibiting investment, particularly from big U.S. firms. And that's precisely what the White House has been doing with this strategy of encouraging big private sector actors to take a risk in northern Central America and, you know, figuring out tools that the United States might have to persuade them to create jobs in that region. So I think on trade, actually, we've done quite a bit and the region needs to take more advantage of its opportunities. On investment, I think we're on the right track, but a great deal more is needed to make sure that families in Honduras feel like they have opportunity at home. Yeah, Carol, let me jump in there, and I agree completely with Ben, but I would put a nuance on the trade agenda, and that is this. Yes, we do have a free trade agreement, CAFTA, Central America Free Trade Agreement, which also includes the Dominican Republic, which was passed and begun to be implemented almost 20 years ago. It has not been fully utilized by the region. That's exactly right. But it needs to be updated dramatically because it doesn't even include many of the provisions of the digital world that we all live in at this point. But more to the point, when CAFTA was originally negotiated, and passed, it intentionally excluded access that Ben was talking about for some of the products that Central America is most competitive in, particularly agriculture and textiles. 
So these are job creating industries and sectors that the Central American economy was explicitly not excluded from, but denied full access to the U.S. market because of U.S. protectionist impulses. And this continues to this day. So there are many ways that we could really bring these trade agenda up to date, bring it more into compliance, if you want to use that word, with the USMCA, with Mexico and Canada to update it, that it's not just not being utilized now by the region, but the agreement itself, it's of another time and place. And if we really want to draw that investment, that meaningful, sustainable investment that actually creates jobs in the region, we're going to have to look at the region in a way that, you know, the sectors that are competitive there and work to try to build them up in a way that we have the power to do. But because of our own domestic politics, it's been very, very difficult and very complicated. Very interesting insights. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. My guests are Eric Farnsworth, from whom you just heard. He's vice president of the Council of the Americas and the America Society. And Benjamin Gadan. He's deputy director of the Woodrow Wilson Center's Latin American program. And they both join me via Microsoft Teams. We're discussing the latest news from Latin America. And this is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Lorenzo Santos Garcia Gallegos from Cuba. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. And you may always send an old fashioned email to encounter at voanews.com. So back to our discussion. And let's now turn to Chile. Let me go back to you, Eric, to talk about the new left-leaning president, Gabriel Boric. It seems as if support for the sort of traditional center-left and center-right parties that governed Chile since the return to democracy in the 1990s somewhat collapsed following the protests that we've discussed at these microphones in 2019 amid anger over the high cost of living and demands for better public services. Talk about the significance of this young, very feminist president that's uh, going to take the reins in March and why it's significant and his challenges. Well, again, this is another significant election. Again, free and fair, the Chilean people have brought into power a new generation or next generation student protest leader from the past who has a few years in Congress and now is charged with managing and running the country. You know, I'm not so sure that the old terms of rightist and leftist and, you know, we can get hung up on that. It's hard to kind of pigeonhole the president-elect of Chile, to be perfectly honest. I mean, is climate change ideological in terms of the right or left spectrum? I don't know. Maybe it is. But there are some real issues that have to be addressed. And the outpouring of really celebration by the Chilean people upon his election, which was by a large margin, was quite noticeable and quite dramatic. Again, he has some big challenges. I mean, the election in some ways is the easy part. Governing is going to be the hard part. Uh, He does have a very divided Congress. He does have, you know, a large segment of the population that doesn't support him. And he also has a constitutional convention that he doesn't control that is on a separate parallel track, which is uh, ongoing this year. And, you know, according to some reports, is going to suggest real changes to the Chilean economy, which from my perspective has been a tremendous success over the past generation, dramatically reducing poverty, bringing in huge amounts of investment, both foreign and domestic, driving growth rates to the top of the Latin American charts, et cetera, et cetera. But having said that, there is popular dissatisfaction. And so the Constitutional Convention is looking for ways to perhaps redistribute some of that wealth, change the economic model, perhaps. We don't 
No. But these are issues that are really going to uh, affect his ability to govern because with all the promises that he made in terms of social development and economic redistribution and costs for climate change and things like that, you have to get money from somewhere. And the question is, if the economic model changes, you may have a different perspective from investors, at which point some of those anticipated resources may begin to languish somewhat. So that's going to be a challenge. And as I say, it's going to be a question of how effectively he's going to be able to govern with a divided Congress, a new, young, vibrant, fresh face, but he also has a a long way to go. So turning to you, uh, Ben Gadan, you've written a lot about the so-called the new left in places like Chile. And so I'd like you to comment on that and your take on Gabriel Boric and the challenges that he faces. Absolutely. I mean, the reason I've been writing about it is precisely because of the ambiguities about definitions of political ideology in Latin America that Eric alludes to. There's a kind of reflex in the United States to see the rise of so-called leftist candidates in the region as an obstacle to U.S. relations, as a danger to U.S. capital that goes to Latin America seeking to profit and increase economic development. And so I think it's important to distinguish between the varieties of leftists in the Western Hemisphere. And I think, you know, definitionally, you could just put it in two categories. You have the old school dictators in Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela. These are the ones who sound like Marxists and they rant about imperialism. They pick a fight with the United States for domestic political purposes, and they have no new were good ideas for managing their economies and protecting the rights of their peoples. This is totally different, right, night and day, from the kind of leader that the Chileans just elected. These are the kind of progressive social Democrats whose agendas sound quite similar to what you hear from the Biden administration. As Eric points out, they talk about environmental protection, they talk about women's rights, they talk about LGBT plus rights, and they talk about, you know, equality, but not in a way that makes you feel they're about to nationalize all industries and chase out foreign investors from the country. Quite to the contrary, they, I think, do recognize that to fulfill the very high expectations that their campaigns have generated, they're going to need foreign investment. They're going to need economic growth. And I think you see in the designees for Boric's cabinet a real recognition of a desire to balance some of the leftist elements in his coalition with figures who are pragmatic and who would reassure foreign investors and domestic private sector actors. So there's a lot of enthusiasm. I would agree with Eric that the challenges are immense, not just in Chile, but elsewhere where, you know, you take Argentina, for example, two years ago, the Argentines elected someone with a somewhat similar profile who came in promising major changes and a redistribution of income, but found that the economic headwinds are immense. Things are much worse now after years of pandemic spending, leaving a debt overhang, real inflation problems causing interest rates to rise, and the kind of anxieties that any political transition can drum up, including in the case of Chile, a constitutional convention, you know, all of that keeps investment on the sidelines, at least in the short term. So again, expectations are high, the challenges are enormous, but very helpfully, you know, the kind of leader that you see emerge in places like Chile is someone much more pragmatic than the title leftist might suggest.
Indeed. And as we close, back to you, Eric Farnsworth, to look ahead to the Summit of the Americas, which is supposed to be held here in the United States in Los Angeles in June. I wonder if you could give us a preview and the challenges and the promise for the Biden administration hosting this. We're at the little over one year mark of his administration. What could the administration do better with regard to our relations with our southern neighbors? Can he make up more significant mark? What's at stake and what's on the agenda for the Summit of the Americas? I think there's a lot at stake, and we're not quite sure what's on the agenda for the summit because the agenda remains in formation. But there is an immense amount at stake because the region, as we're now heading deeper into 2022, faces some real economic headwinds. It still hasn't uh, found its way out of the pandemic, which Omicron continues to rage. And so we have those issues, and we also have issues of demands for better opportunity and, in some cases, social justice, but also a broader economic stake for populations. And you also have from the outside countries with authoritarian governments like China, but also others as well, really taking a higher profile in the region and changing the dynamic across the region in many ways. And so the White House at the Summit of the Americas will have to wrestle with some of these issues. From my perspective, I really hope that they take a hard look at a hemispheric vaccination approach that the United States should have already been leading from frankly, but could do a better job and should do a better job. We need to have a trade and economic agenda to help the region out of a very deep economic hole. And we have to take a hard look at the democracy agenda as well. We've been talking about democracy today. There are some deep issues, and some of the countries we didn't mention face elections this year and real challenges across the region that are being, frankly, made more complicated by China and some of the other countries. And so these are challenges. And then you layer on top of that, Carol, the question about who's even going to be invited to the summit of the Americas, which traditionally is supposed to include all the democracies in the Western Hemisphere. And for those who are invited, will they all attend? I mean, just because you're invited doesn't mean you have to show up at the party. And so I think there are some real open questions that have to be resolved. I think the issue that I see is that after the first Summit of the Americas that the U.S. hosted in 1994, which I was actually a part of when I was in government and, and played a role in that, as minor as it was. But, you know, we see a transformed hemisphere from those days to the next U.S. hosted summit in June of this year. Some of the changes are very, very positive. Some of the changes, such as the number of countries that can credibly be called democratic, are negative. We've actually gone down the scale in terms of number of countries which are fully democratic. And that's a real challenge. We have to acknowledge it. I think we have to roll up our sleeves, find partners, as Ben was saying, in the context of Central America and elsewhere, and really commit ourselves to a forward-looking, aggressive agenda to restore the hope and the promise of the Western Hemisphere. Ben Gaden, you have the last word. Put on your policy hat. You were a high-level national security advisor for the former Obama administration on Latin America. How do you see the challenges for the Summit of the Americas? Where can the United States make a mark and make a difference? Most of all, I think it's great that the summit is occurring and number two being hosted by the United States. The summit only takes place once every three years. This one was delayed by a year because of the pandemic. The United States hasn't hosted this summit in almost 20 years. And the fact that President Biden is going to be a part of it means it's going to drive a lot of energy throughout the United States foreign policy machinery to be focused on Latin America. And that's precisely what the region demands right now. The region really is on its knees, very slow 
growth since 2014, so well before the pandemic, devastating economic and public health impacts, a region, as Eric points out, that's really struggling to defend its democratic traditions. It's going to create an opportunity for the United States to put forward a really ambitious agenda. What will those subjects be? We'll see. There's a lot of ideological divisions in the region. So one of the major challenges is not just having the United States at the table with big ideas, but trying to build consensus in a region that's really divided ideologically and politically these days. You know, you have countries like Argentina and Brazil, big, important neighbors that are hardly on speaking terms. So the challenge is immense in terms of diplomacy and coordination. I think minimally, you have a desire for the United States to be a much bigger presence in the economic recovery of the region and using a lot of tools not only to compete with China's Belt and Road Initiative, but to just bring creativity, investment, U.S. government support and lending to a region that really needs economic opportunity and needs it quickly. And I do think correctly, the United States has tied that economic recovery agenda to the democracy promotion and defense agenda by recognizing that democracies that don't produce prosperity are not democracies that can sustain the support of people and can resist authoritarian forces and populists who would come in making false promises in exchange for trampling on the balance of power and rule of law in these societies. So I think connecting the democracy agenda and the economic recovery agenda is a savvy move, and I'm sure both will be on the agenda for the Summit of the Americas with the United States, pushing both those agendas quite proactively. We'll be sure to have more news and analysis in the run-up to the Summit of the Americas and many elections in the region in the coming months. But for now, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this Latin American edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Eric Farnsworth, Vice President of the America Society and Council of the Americas, and Ben Gadan, Deputy Director of the Latin American Program at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.